Hello and welcome to the Dorkomotive Podcast with Brian Loans. On this episode, we tell the story of America's 40-year obsession with staged locomotive crashes. This was a spectator event unlike anything the world had ever seen, and it put tens of thousands, perhaps millions of people in the grandstands of state fairs and exhibitions across the country. It is a story of twisted steel and sex appeal that spanned from the 1890s all the way into the 1930s across America. This episode of the Dorkomotive Podcast is presented by Aeromotive. Since 1994, Aeromotive has been a leader in the high-performance aftermarket, manufacturing pumps, fittings, regulators, and now in-tank solutions for high-performance cars, trucks, and marine applications. Visit them online at aeromotiveinc.com. Remember, if you can race it, Aeromotive can fuel it. Welcome to a highly destructive episode here of the Dorkomotive Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Loans, and we examine today one of America's most bizarre and interesting and, frankly, a fairly long-lasting spectator event known as the Stage Locomotive Crash. This is something that began in the late 1800s and then ended in the mid-1930s as far as its reign of popularity went. You know, in today's world of demolition derbies and other type activities, it's not too uncommon for us to be entertained by wrecking things. In fact, I remember as a kid going into Boston and sitting across Boston Harbor with my family watching a building be imploded in the city. It was a huge spectator event. Tens of thousands of people came, but a very safe distance, of course, to watch this particular building get taken down. And frankly, you can see the popularity of such videos on YouTube and even when buildings are imploded across the country, even to this day, it makes major headline news and people show up to watch these buildings expertly taken down. Now, when we go back to the late 1800s, there were no demolition derbies, there were no skyscrapers, and frankly, there wasn't much out there that was entertainment uh, being made by destroying things, especially things like locomotives, these giant iron machines that had transformed the country of the United States and really linked it not only coast to coast, but also linked major cities together. Of course, it was a major factor in the Civil War. Railroads became incredibly important in a military sense. And the locomotive was uh, the driving engine of the United States of America and really the world at this time in history. So we have to go back to 1895 to get this whole thing started. And it's kind of bizarre that this activity would be formed not just by one person, but really by four people at nearly the same time in different parts of the country were all kind of influenced or all kind of had the light bulb go off in their head at the same time that crashing locomotives together may be something that people would pay to watch and maybe something that could make them a bunch of money as well as perhaps sponsors. And this very first planned locomotive crash was going to be held at Buckeye Lake, Ohio, which was a big park in 1895, by a guy named A.L. Streeter. And Streeter is a guy who worked for the railroads, had been in the railroad business his whole life, and he really became the first person to conceive of this as something people would come and watch. And so on July 20th, 1895, just before the event was supposed to take place, it was canceled and never happened. And uh, Streeter lost his backside financially. His backers all lost their their tails as far as their investments went. The reason it was canceled, uh, people got cold feet at the very last second. The railroads that were involved with uh, bringing passengers in were nervous that something bad was going to happen. And what seemed like it was going to be a great thing really went down the tubes at the very last second. But Streeter did not give up nor did the organizers and the people that ran this Buckeye Lake Park give up because in 1896 they had just opened up a new hotel, they had made a bunch of improvements, they had turned the place kind of into a what they called a pleasure resort. So on May 30th of 1896, the big day arrives. This will be the very first staged locomotive crash in America, contrary to what you have likely ever read. And we're going to get into that here in a couple of minutes. But this very first crash, 20,000 people come to watch. And you may be wondering, well, how do you make money wrecking the locomotives? You make the money on charging passengers to get on the trains to come and watch. You have 20,000 ticket-buying, fare-buying passengers have come to watch this thing. They pay a special rate to come watch the crash, and thereby the locomotive company makes a bunch of money, or the railroad company makes a bunch of money. They had built a one-mile section of elevated track that uh, was uh, raised up to give everybody a good view of what was about to happen, and this moment in time kicked off what would become a 40-year craze across America. 
So the elevated track is there. Uh, the the folks are all watching. Tens of thousands of people. They couldn't even get to the event. There were so many people trying to get in and in carriages and everything else. They ended up kind of pushing it back a couple hours in the afternoon because of the fact that uh, they wanted to get as many people in there as possible. Each of the trains were equipped with a locomotive, a couple of coal cars, and a caboose. So you had, you know, fairly stubby little trains here, but two locomotives that were actually pulling a couple of things. It wasn't just the engines that were going to hit. They actually had a couple of cars attached to them. So at 4.25 p.m. in the afternoon, the, the two conductors, or the two engineers, I should say, built up heads of steam in their engines. They ripped the throttle handle open, pinned it back, and then they jumped out. And the two locomotives, using a half to three-quarters of a mile run up a piece, they figured they'd be going about 45 or 50 miles an hour when they hit. They met in the correct spot, and whammo. The two engines crash. It becomes this phenomenal moment. The people storm onto the wreckage. A couple people were hurt, minor injuries. Um, one guy named T.C. Peck uh, was hit in the face by a flying bolt. Uh, that was reported in the newspaper the next day. He did recover. It was not a fatal injury. But this was the very first staged train wreck in America, and it was fantastically um, successful in terms of financial and everything else. Obviously, the wreck happens. You have to, the scrap metal is going to be taken care of, so you get money for scrapping the locomotives. But the big money came from the tens of thousands of people that paid to actually watch this thing. What you think, likely, is that the very first stage locomotive crash happened in a place called Crush, Texas. And you're wrong. Because it didn't. And history shows us, and history tells us so often, that the very first crash wasn't Crush, but it really wasn't. And as kind of low-key as this Buckeye Lake, Ohio crash was, it was really the crash at Crush, which we're going to talk about next, that put this phenomenon on the map. The incident, or the spectator event in Ohio kick things off but when we go to crush texas and we talk about everything that went into making the crash at crush and what it represented this really does kick off what we can call the uh golden age of the stage locomotive crash in america in fact there were four separate stage locomotive crashes in four different places during the month of september in 1896 which is I think an amazing thing to think about because these events would take so long to put together. They were not all organized one after the next. Something didn't happen in Texas. And the next week someone said, let's do this up here in Iowa. These were all being planned simultaneously uh, by different people. And it's a pretty amazing thing. So one last point on the Ohio wreck, the neatest line from the newspaper coverage following the, the fantastic stories that were written about this Buckeye Lake, Ohio stage wreck were, calling it the most realistic and expensive spectacle ever produced for the amusement of an American audience. And it was. But it wasn't that way for long, because the crash at Crush, Texas, that is the defining, if you will, the historic watermark, landmark, of these stage locomotive crashes, it blows it into the weeds by every measure. So when we talk about the crash at Crush, we first have to talk about a guy who, well, came up with the idea in Texas and organized the whole thing. And his name, unbelievably, was William Crush. So William Crush was a guy who worked for a railroad known as the Missouri-Kansas-Texas Railroad, which more commonly is known as the Katy. And you've probably heard songs, if you've ever heard the song, uh, she, caught a, she Caught the Katy, which is a famous blues song. It, it kind of mentions the railroad. Um, there are other kind of ways that it's been described in popular culture, but the Katy was a very well-known line of railroad in Texas. And Crush was a passenger agent on this line, and he was the one that went to the management of the railroad and said, hey, uh, we should do one of these train crashes and we should make it a really huge spectacle. And to the point where they actually created a pop-up fake town to put this in. There was no place called Crush, Texas, but they made a place called Crush, Texas, and they did so uh, to make a point for people, again, to travel to, to watch this spectacle. The idea was, just like it was in Ohio, you're going to put on this wreck. It's not going to cost you that much to put the wreck on. We'll get on the logistics of this in a little while. Uh, but you're going to be able to draw thousands and thousands of people in. All of those people have to buy a ticket on one of your trains to get there. Bada bing, bada boom. This is how you make the money. The big difference during or for the, the famed crash at Crush was that they expanded the concept of the 
uh, in-venue entertainment, let's say. They expanded the concept of doing stuff as an event around the train crash itself and not simply focusing on the crash. Before we go too far into that, I want to talk a little bit about the historic kind of situation that the United States was in when we talk about 1896. In 1893, the United States economy absolutely collapsed. There was an economic depression during this time period, and it happened for the same reason that we see so many other global economic depressions happen over the course of time. People investing in things that they don't really understand. Uh, The economies of various countries start to fall down. And that, of course, causes the world economy to take uh, to take a dive, which is exactly what happened in 1893. There was a stock market crash known as the Panic of 1893, and the economic disaster that that ensued was pretty jaw-dropping. And a lot of people have, I guess, forgotten about this, but you had places like Pennsylvania had 25% unemployment, 35% unemployment in New York, 43% unemployment in Michigan. And the country was almost broke to the point where the United States government had to borrow money from private citizens like J.P. Morgan to keep the Treasury actually running properly. Um, the, The levels of gold that the United States had gotten down to were dangerously low. They borrowed $67 million in gold from J.P. Morgan uh, during this period of time, which is was pretty amazing. And as you can imagine, the railroad industry got hurt really bad during this time period because of the fact that shipping um, and the commerce uh, of goods went in the tank. No one, There was no real need for railroad work. Um, yes, they were carrying passengers to some degree still, but very little pleasure travel was being done. The economy um, and manufacturing going downhill meant that there was less and less freight to move over the rails. And it caused about 25% of the railroads in the country to go bankrupt in 1894. So the Katy was not in that bad of shape in terms of finances, but Crush saw this as a, as a way to keep the name prominently displayed, to actually make some forward publicity for the railroad, and to use this as a selling point. Remember, the railroads are all bidding against each other for all this different type of commerce work, whether it was what the passenger fares are going to be, whether it was how much the freight would cost per ton per mile you were trying to move it. There was active bidding wars going on between all these railroads for people's business. So if you're able to have the highest profile railroad, have the one that kind of dominates the headlines, uh, you keep yourself in a power position to be able to negotiate with people and provide services and goods. The other thing to talk about regarding the 1890s and the growth of railroads in the country Uh, In 1893, there were 176,800 miles of railroad track in the United States. Now, between 1894 and 95, only 4,000 miles of track were added, which tells us that everything stagnated and virtually stopped. And it does, wow, 4,000 miles of track. That's, what, back and forth across the United States, effectively. 2,000 miles one way, 2,000 miles the other But when you look at how much growth had happened during the period before this, it gives a good indication of just how kind of bleak things had looked at this point in time. So the 1890s are often uh, referred to as the gay 90s. That was the way that they were described. The Roaring 20s and the 1920s, this was called the gay 90s in the late 1800s. And it really wasn't. And it's a very strange kind of way that, that this decade of history is remembered because when you look at all the things that happened uh, during this period of time, there wasn't a lot of fun going on. And it does perhaps explain a little bit of why people were so okay with the destructive violence of crashing locomotives for fun. The other thing we have to talk about is railroad safety and the kind of strange fascination people might have had to watch locomotives crash into each other um, at this time in history. Uh, we know what a car crash looks like. Uh, we Demolition derbies, obviously, we know that. We see car wrecks um, on the highway. Unfortunately, we see them around town. These are things that happen on a fairly regular basis, and the majority of them do not result in any fatalities, thankfully. A lot of them do, but the majority of car accidents across the country are not fatal accidents. Now, the majority of train crashes across the country weren't fatal accidents either, but the ones that were did not leave much in the way of witnesses. So, let's talk a little bit about this. So, for the first 25 years of railroading in the United States, um, really pretty safe. Uh, the locomotives were very slow. There weren't that many of them. Um, there wasn't a lot of confusion in terms of where places, you know, where you could go, how you could get there. 
but as railroading grew and as the popularity of railroading grew, the amount of and number of miles of tracks increased vastly. The number of locomotives increased vastly. The speed of those locomotives increased vastly. The idea of maintaining schedules, being on time, rushing things, all of these things, these very human elements came into play. And when we look at the 1850s, things start to go a little bit south in terms of railroading in America and safety. And on July 17th of 1856 in Camp Hill, Pennsylvania, uh, what was then the worst railroad disaster in America happened where two locomotives ran at speed head-on into each other, killing 66 people. And all of a sudden, uh, that made front-page news across the country, and a lot of smaller incidents began to stack up as well. In 1876, the Pacific Express was crossing a bridge in Ashtabula, Ohio. The bridge collapses, kills 80 people. 1878, 25 people killed in a derailment in Boston because the wrong switch was thrown and the, rail, the train went in the wrong direction, throws off the rails. And uh, because of the fact that the cars were made of wood, when these things would flip over, it was, it was horrendous. There were no safety measures. There were no seat belts. There was no sort of structure to protect anyone. They would just break into toothpicks and, and you were kind of left on your own. In 1887, 82 people were killed in Chatsworth, Illinois, Again, head-on collision accident. So in 1880, there were 8,216 reported railway accidents in the United States. Let me just say that again. In 1880, there were 8,216 reported railway accidents in the United States. Now, these are things that could be fairly minor and obviously things that could be very major. But you went for a quarter century up until the mid-1850s with really nothing. And then from the next quarter century, you went into this um, very scary type of situation. We get on airplanes today with the implicit understanding that the plane has been serviced, that the pilot is trained, that things have been taken care of, and that we are in safe hands. When you got onto a locomotive in the 1800s, there was not a lot of guarantee that something wasn't going to happen. And that's a kind of an amazing thing that people just kind of looked past because of the fact that these locomotives transformed their lives. They looked past the safety deficits to understand that, hey, this trip that would take me two days in the past, I can now make in three hours on a train, or I can get somewhere that I never thought I'd be able to travel to in a day as opposed to a week. Um, yeah, it might be dangerous, but I'm going to take the risk anyway. Head-on collisions were by far the most terrifying style of accident you could have on a train, I'd say outside of a bridge collapse. And the bridge collapse... Bridge collapses happened with a frightening level of regularity back then. But a head-on collision, um, literally the worst of the worst. And that is partially the reason why so many people wanted to see what it looked like. If you were on a train that had a head-on collision at speed and you were in a car, you didn't see what it looked like. Uh, if you lived through it, you could certainly tell the tale to your friends and family about what the calamity was like after the fact, what it might have looked like after the fact, but you didn't actually see the moment of impact. You felt it as you were you know, thrown about the car in whatever speed. And the other thing we have to worry, uh, worry about, yeah, they did. The other thing we have to talk about is the fact that um, up until about 1860, uh, the and even for several years after the fact that the only thing that kept head-on collisions from happening were railroads actually following the timetables that they produced. Remember, there is no communication in the United States that can reach from train station to train station before the telegraph comes out. And even after the telegraph comes out, it takes many years to get anybody... It, it takes many years to, for the telegraph to proliferate throughout the country, meaning... Yes, your major cities had telegraph lines. Yes, the major stations likely had them. But smaller stations had no way to communicate with each other. And so when you think about this, just think about for a fact of an, at an airport. If there was no air traffic control, the only thing that controlled airports was the fact that your plane was scheduled to land at 2.29 p.m. And that runway, you were going to trust that that runway was open at 2.29 p.m. And if somebody was slated to take off at 2.27 p.m. and they didn't quite get out of the gate on time and they were sitting on that runway at 2.29, you were going to land your plane on top of them. And in locomotives, it, it is astonishing to think about this, but in locomotive travel, that was how it worked. Your train was supposed to be in Chattanooga at 3.30 p.m. and you were going to head down you know, east on this particular railroad, railroad track until 4.30, at which point you would switch off onto another track to your final destination. 
So that meant a train coming the opposite direction. And this sounds like a bad math problem from high school starting, but this meant a, 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 a train traveling the opposite direction, if you didn't get off your switch on time, was going to run head on into you. And there was nothing you could do to stop it. There was no way you could know that person was coming. And the only way you would know is if you were the engineer and you looked out the window and said, uh-oh, here he comes, and at least you had a chance to dive to safety. Nobody behind you had any idea. And the genesis of those math problems that, that make us want to jump out of windows in high school about the two trains leaving from different points and where they will meet comes from the timetable era of railroading. These were the math problems that railroad planners and people involved in railroading had to pass to understand how they would set up train schedules. So the reason you had head-on collisions during this time period is because, one, you had a locomotive that might have been off schedule, that was trying to make up time, that was trying to get where they needed to go, and they were on quite literally the same track as a train coming the other way. Or two, you had somebody that messed up the math making a time schedule. And if you made the math wrong, or if your time schedule didn't jive with another locomotive trying to come down the same track, you absolutely know exactly what happened. So, in 1875, there were 104 head-on collisions of trains. This was 20 years after the telegraph came out. There were still 100 and four head-on train collisions. And again, this doesn't mean that they were all at full speed ahead. This doesn't mean that they were all, you know, included a great number of fatalities, but it does mean that 104 times trains straight up ran into each other from being on the same track and traveling different directions. There were safety things that were invented. These things were called torpedoes. Um, so the torpedoes, you know, all this stuff is is just... Uh, band-aids for the major problem of of communication but we'll talk a little bit about the torpedoes later on but imagine if you will your train breaks down on a track and you can't move and you know there's other trains coming you would run as fast as you could as far as you could down the rails and you'd place these little explosive devices on the rails and they were small and when the oncoming train hopefully a mile plus away hit them uh, it would signal these these explosions and flashes of fire would signal the engineer to hit the brakes because something bad was happening in front of him. This is a great system if you have the time and gumption to run a mile plus down the road or down the track to get the other train to stop. But other than that, it was it was very uh, <laughs> it was very not a lot, uh, very unhelpful. Let's call it that. It was very unhelpful. Other than if you have the luxury of uh, of actually giving a bunch of advance warning. So I wanted to set the scene a little bit there regarding the economics of this time period, why people may have had a little bit of a dark streak in them to see crashes, and two, uh, the railroad safety at the time, which was, I don't want to say non-existent, but it was certainly very, very roughshod, and it was another thing that people wanted to see. How rare is it, especially in 2020, to attend, to think about, to understand the fact that you could go to an event and witness something that you had never, ever seen before. Today we have YouTube. Today we have every sort of visual communication means. We are the entire you know, accumulated uh, you know, knowledge of mankind is available at a few keystrokes on your phone. So this concept of being shown something that not only you had never seen before, but the majority of the human race had never actually seen before in person, watching at a quote-unquote safe distance, was a great allure to these particular crashes. It was something that, um, for whatever reason, you know, touched a part of people's psyche that they wanted to uh, that they wanted to examine. So, this brings us all back to the pop-up town of Crush, Texas, in 1896. William Crush says, "Hey, listen, we're going to have the train crash. That's fine. But the way we're going to make the real money here is we're going to have entertainment. We're going to have uh, circus acts. We're going to have all this different side stuff. So, let's talk about kind of the logistics of." Um, of exactly what he wanted to, to do here. He buys two locomotives. There are two old 35-ton engines that were going to get scrapped anyway. One of them is painted the colors of red and green, red being the primary, green being accent. The other is painted green primary, and red are the accent colors. Katie and other executives from I'm sure rather crush and other executives from the Katy railroad met with some of their most experienced engineers and said, Hey, what do you think is going to happen when we do this? And all of them, but one said nothing. The last guy said, well, if you do this, uh, the boiler's probably going to explode. 
And as we have talked about in other episodes of the Dorkomotive podcast, steam boiler explosions are some of the most ungodly things that uh, mankind has created, especially during this time period of the 1800s. We had an episode of this series on the uh, SS Sultana, which was a, a riverboat that exploded on the Mississippi River and sunk, killing a couple thousand people because of a failed steam engine or a steam boiler. So if you take one of these massive locomotives, which is basically a boiler on wheels, and run it into another one, is there a risk of that happening again? Most of the engineers said, nope, no problem. One guy said, eh, I don't know if this is such a great idea. But they advanced on anyway. So the original event being kind of small potatoes to this one, Crush decides he is going all in. 15 miles north of Waco, Texas, he lays about a mile and a half of track. And he has two wells actually drilled with then the wells are then plumbed with pipes and spigots. He hires a guy from Dallas to run 12 lemonade stands. So they're going to make money selling lemonade. He brings in tanks, tanker train tankers of mineral water because he figures, well, it's Texas going to be kind of hot in September. People are going to pay for water. So he brings those in. He rented a Ringling Brothers circus tent from actual Ringling Brothers, and set up a restaurant inside of it. So the circus tent, a full-size three-ring circus tent, was a massive restaurant, and he hired 200 constables to build, or rather to be crowd control, and he actually built a small wooden jail on the property of this fake town of Crush, Texas, to put any people in that were going to be unruly or people that were drunk, people that were disorderly. They would be put in the, the, the brig, if you will, uh, by one of the 200 constables that he had hired. Finally, he hired a huge number of carnival attractions. I'm guessing he did this through Ringling, but they had a whole line of, you know, see the bearded lady and the dog-faced boy and the contortionist and the other crazy stuff that they did back then. So when you arrived at this event, you paid your money, you took your train ride, 15 miles outside of Waco, Texas. Most of the people coming from Dallas, of course, taking the trains down. You got off and, and you saw a circus tent and you saw these sideshow acts and you saw the lemonade stands and you saw the giant restaurant. And all of a sudden, this was not just two trains crashing. This was like a cultural happening. And by September 15th, 10 a.m., 10,000 people were on hand already. 10,000 people had showed up by 10 a.m. Every single five minutes, another train was coming in. By 4 p.m., people were still trying to get there. The trains hung up because of all the traffic. Uh, they, they were, like, still streaming off the trains. They had people queued up for miles to get in. So they delayed the crash until 5.10 p.m. So... That was the best they could do. They were going to lose the daylight. They needed the, They knew that the people had to get back to their, where they came from. So at 5, 10 p.m., uh, Crush finally says, okay, it's go time. Like, we got to do this thing. We've waited long enough. I've sold out of food in my restaurant. I'm almost out of lemonade. It's time to crash these trains and get these people out of here. So there were two engineers involved here. C.E. Stanton and Charles Kane are the engineers of record uh, on these two trains. And the way that this worked... Again, going back to the fact that you can't text somebody, you cannot call somebody, you cannot um, do anything in terms of immediate communication accurately. Charles Crush got on a horse, rode the horse out into the center of the race, or the railroad tracks where these trains were sitting about half to three quarters of a mile apart facing each other. And he waved his hat. And apparently people with field glasses were down there looking with binoculars on. They see Crush out there waving his hat around. The engines had been uh, building up steam already, so they were fully steamed up and ready to go. And the two engineers pulled the throttle lever wide open. They waited for the engines each to puff 12 times. So a train engine, they waited for the 12th one. That was the decider, and they jumped out. And they stood there and undoubtedly with a, a weird sickening feeling in their stomach doing this thing that seems anathema to everything they'd ever been trained to do. They jumped out about 30 yards, 40 yards into the, uh, into the, the run and the two trains began to gather speed. It is estimated that the two trains hit at 50 miles an hour, which as we'll find out is way faster than 
the trains would do this in ensuing years. So they run into each other at 50 miles an hour, which is about as fast as either of them could go. They had the engine and a coal car behind them, and as they ran into each other, this assembled crowd, which they estimate now was probably forty to 50,000 people, after all was said and done, view this moment in time of these two engines colliding at full speed, and it is unreal, and there's a gasp that comes up from the crowd. Unfortunately, we talk about those engineers that they had consulted with, that four of them said nothing's going to happen, and one of them said it would. Well, the one of them was right, because it took a second or two but all of a sudden, either one or both of the boilers exploded. And when this happened, it showered debris everywhere. Two people were killed. One guy was a kid, actually. He was a kid sitting in a tree hundreds of feet away from the train tracks. The boilers explode. A length of chain with a hook on it hit this guy, young man, straight in the head, knocked him out of the tree. He was dead. Another guy in the crowd was standing next to his wife and be between his wife and another woman he was struck square in the head with a piece of iron from the exploding boiler he was killed on the spot dozens of people were burned by the steam many many people were cut badly there was uh, dozens of, of injuries because of this and there were pieces of the locomotive that landed about a thousand feet away and we're talking big hunks of, of sheet iron that were flying through the air uh, basically just a giant field of shrapnel and degree, debris why did this happen? Well, the boilers are under a lot of pressure. When the two locomotives hit, obviously it compromises some of that iron sheeting, and as soon as some steam begins to escape, it expands rapidly, and you have a giant explosion. So you had people with splinters, getting hit with wood, getting hit with iron, getting hit with different parts, pieces, chains, and everything else. So the photographer of the event was a guy named J.C. Dean. And you can actually look up and see Dean's photos, which are unbelievable when you consider the fact that this was 1896 and he took these photos. He has one at the moment of impact. He has one immediately after the moment of impact. And he has one, well, those are the only two he got because he was struck in the face uh, by bolts and other parts and pieces, was injured very badly, did survive. But J.C. Dean, the photographer, uh, who was way too close to the action, and you'll be able to tell how close he was because it isn't like you had a telephoto lens in 1896 when you look up these photos. So Dean gets hit in the face, gets injured, eventually collects a $10,000 uh, settlement from the railroad for his work, and he sold his photos as well. So what is the aftermath of this? Well, all these people are hurt, laying on the ground, bleeding. We have a couple people that are dead, but tens of thousands of people then rushed up to the wreck to grab souvenirs. And... It was a very strange thing. You, you had this scene that was almost um, uh, almost like a battlefield in some sense with a lot of people being cared for, laying on the ground injured, and they were almost trampled by people who just wanted to get up to the wreck and touch it and look at it and take a piece of it home, which is exactly what so many people did. It was such a calamity that Crush was fired on the spot by the organizers or by the management of the railroad. When the people, when they saw what happened as far as the injuries and the people bleeding and laying on the ground, they thought for sure that uh, they were in for a very, very bad run of publicity, and they thought they were going to be in a lot of trouble. What they were wrong about was that they weren't in for any of that. And within 48 hours, the railroad had rehired Crush, and Crush would work for them for the rest of his life. But William Crush, um, the guy, the guy was fired and rehired. He, was, he put on an event that killed two people, and as it turns out, yes, they had to pay some settlements out. They had to pay some money to people that were hurt and to the families of the people that were killed, but they made absolute piles of money beyond their own imagination, and the fame from this helped do exactly what they initially thought it would do, which was to make the Katy famous across the United States. And there are great news stories and there are accounts of what happened. And it, and it really is something to kind of look at the media of 1896 and see how they kind of viewed um, this moment in time. And one of those stories comes from the Dallas Morning News of 1896, the day after the crash. And when you read the, when you read the account, the, the headline is, It is over at last. Head-end collision is a thing of the past wreck and ruin the engines and 12 cars which have been selected for slaughter were destroyed dozens injured by flying missiles two or three seriously perhaps fatally others slightly 30,000 spectators thronged the grounds 
and made things lively during the day and the bursting of the boilers. So as the news story is uh, reporting, it's it basically comes to the engines, which are both completely telescoped, kind of contrary to the experience in some cases, instead of rising in the air from the force of the blow, were just flattened out. There was nothing about, there was nothing of the cars big enough to save except for pieces of wood, which were taken and seized upon by carriers home as souvenirs. It took the great crowd at least a minute to realize what had happened, and then with a united yell, they scrambled over the, the dead line, through the brush, tearing down barbed wire fences and knocking down wooden ones in a wild attempt to get to the smoking heap and debris. That the ruin was so complete that they could not believe it themselves. It was only after they had thoroughly investigated the situation that they comprehended in the full breadth and scope of what they had seen, and then began to, to, to relic hunt the rest of it. Everything that could be carried away was laid hold of, and it would be safe to say that of the 30,000 on the grounds, 25,000 of them are saving souvenirs of their exciting day's adventure. Imagine if this had happened in 2020. What would the reporting be then? Would it be talking about the exciting day's adventure, or would it be talking about how this weird sideshow act had killed a couple people and wounded dozens more? Just a very different way to look at history. So, we're officially off and running now with what would become a 40-year kind of obsession in the United States, a 40-year ticket-buying frenzy of staged railroad crashes. And if we know that the crush crash was the first high-profile one, we know a few things. We know that this crush crash really kind of put it on the national map. We know the first one happened at Buckeye Park in Ohio. But we also know as we look through American history, when something like this comes up, when an idea emerges, there is always one person who's able to take it and do the best with it and perhaps do better than anybody else. And the name of that person was a man named Joe Connolly. They called him Head on Joe, and Head on Joe is going to be the next part of our story. This episode of the Dorkomotive Podcast is presented by Aeromotive. Since 1994, Aeromotive has been a leader in the high-performance aftermarket, manufacturing pumps, fittings, regulators, and now in-tank solutions for high-performance cars, trucks, and marine applications. Visit them online at aeromotiveinc.com. Remember, if you can race it, Aeromotive can fuel it. It was a scant few days after the crash at Crush, Texas, that Joe Connolly staged his very first locomotive crash this on September 18, 1896, in Des Moines, Iowa. And Joe Connolly would become effectively known as the king of the staged train wreck. And this is a guy who, between 1896 and 1932, put on 73 staged train wrecks. This one guy put on 73 of these things himself being responsible for the destruction of 146 steam-powered locomotives. And what Conley did, uh, he, like everybody else that's ever done anything in a, in a capitalist way, if you will, he refined an idea. Somebody makes an idea, and we look at how this has happened across American history. Somebody comes up with an idea, and then somebody else sees it, tweaks on it, changes it, and then turns it into a big business. There were dozens of promoters that made these events across the country, dozens of them. But Joe Connolly stands out as the guy who did them the most and probably the most successfully. At his very first uh, wreck, 1896 Des Moines State Fair, he brings two old, what they call 460 engines in. That's the way you count the wheels on a locomotive, 460. And he bought these uh, trains from the Des Moines North and Western Railroad. And he got teamed up with a guy named J.H. Bancroft, who was an engineer. And he went to the state fair officials in Des Moines, said, hey, I want to put this wreck on. And for 5000 bucks, you pay me five grand, I will put the wreck on, you keep the profits. They said, we don't got 5000 bucks." So he said, okay, give me 3000 and a cut of the ticket sales, and uh, I'm in. And so they agreed to that. And when we talk about these two, you have to remember, um, just think about the logistics of putting on a stage locomotive crash. At a state fair, you have to build a spur off the main line to drive the trains to the fair. There is no train track that exists on a fairground. You have to drive the train to the fairground. Then you have to build your mile spur off of that to actually crash the trains into each other. And then after the wreck, you have to hire scrappers to come in and either cut them up with acetylene torches or a, rear, a big crane comes in and then 
knocks the things over, and then you come up with torches. The logistics of this, this was not just a for one moment of entertain, entertainment. This was weeks and weeks of labor and work. So what, um, what Conley does here is he stages his first crash, uh, and it turns out to be an astonishingly huge hit. Some say up to 80,000 people paid 50 cents apiece to watch this in person, and there were tens of thousands of people trying to peek over the fence and see it for free. And when we look back and think of what 50 cents is worth from the 1896 era to now, it's close to 20 bucks. It's a it's a equivalency of 10 to 20 dollars. So you bought a ticket uh, for a sizable amount of your money. 50 cents was no joke back then. And you look at what food cost. I mean, just look at what a, you could have bought a steak, you know, for for a nickel or whatever it was. 10, 15 cents buys you a nice steak dinner. This guy is 50 cents a piece for the ticket, and tens of thousands of people showed up. So it is a massive success and uh, launches him when he sees this first when he goes, oh, this is something I need to do a whole lot more of. And one of the things that set Conley aside is the fact that he was really smarter than Crush in, in how he executed um, these particular crashes, especially this first one. When Crush got his engines, he kind of went and had them tuned up to make sure they were in top condition, that they would run into each other at a terrific speed. And... Conley spends some time tweaking on his concept, tweaking on his his math, and we'll get to that in a little while. But it is Conley's idea of, listen, I'm going to buy some cheap locomotives. They're not going to be that fast. They're going to be kind of leaky and old and dingy. I'll throw some paint on them, and that's fine. But I'm not going to make them mechanically any better than they are. And he also did not run them at full steam ahead into each other. He ran them with the boilers at fairly low pressure because um, not that he had heard what happened at Crush and was changing his his philosophy or his uh, attack mode to make sure that didn't happen. He just knew intrinsically, listen, I don't want these things running at full bore. I don't want the boilers at full steam. I don't want the boilers to explode. Therefore, I will pick a speed that I think will put on a good show. We'll run the boilers a little bit lazier, and we'll have kind of lighter trains that can get up to whatever speed I need them to get to to put on the show and not, uh, and not jeopardize anybody's safety. So he determines that he wants the trains to hit at about a combined speed of 50 miles an hour. you got to remember, the trains in Crush hit each other, each going 50 miles an hour for a combined speed of 100. For Connolly's crashes, he's like, I want 25, 30 miles an hour piece tops. That should give me a good show, and that should uh, entertain everybody. Turns out he was 100% right. And he went through almost every one of these 73 wrecks without so much as hurting a soul. There was one lone exception, which we'll talk about here in a little while. So, crush happens, huge success in Texas. Connolly has his first crash, huge success in Iowa. Believe it or not, days later, in Sioux City, at a different fair in Iowa, they have another one. Connolly didn't put this one on. It was independently produced. And they ran two very small and old, what they call Mason Bogey engines. Mason Bogey was a locomotive manufacturer. And they only made about 146 locomotives between 1871 and 1890. And it gives you an idea of the scope of these crashes. You know, you're not crashing things that Mason Bogey didn't make 1,000 locomotives, and you, you crushed two of them. They only made 146 trains. And uh, this 1896 crash involved two of their earliest and smallest ones. It was a less dramatic affair than either Des Moines or Crush, but it drew, it drew crowd. Um, it didn't hurt anybody. It made money, and these trains basically only ran about 20 miles an hour. So when they hit each other, even if they were going as fast as they could go, they were probably going a combined speed of about 40. And I mentioned that there were four of these. So Sioux City, success. Des Moines, Iowa, success. Crush, success. And then the fourth crash in September of 1896 actually happened just outside of Denver, Colorado, and it was done as a political fundraiser for a political party, an election uh, of, uh, to raise money, I should say, for the political party during election season. And this was the least impressive of the two wrecks, or of the four wrecks, I should say. Two old, small, narrow-gauge engines for the Union Pacific and Denver Gulf railroads were bought and crashed on purpose. And believe it or not, the impact was so slow that both of the locomotives were able to be fixed and put back into service. They sold the locomotives after the crash for salvage, and somebody came in there from another small locomotive line or maybe an industrial line or even an industrial, say, mining operation came in and said, yeah, we'll buy those. And they bought the two locomotives that had basically bumped into each other for almost no money. And uh, 
by doing so, was able to almost like buying a used car with a bad engine. If you're a good mechanic, you buy the used car with a bad engine, swap an engine in, you have a great car for no money. Well, they did the same thing there. And that Denver crash was kind of indicative of how a lot of these things would go, the ones that weren't produced by somebody like head-on Joe Conley. Joe Conley later in his crashing career had a quote, and somebody kind of asked him why he did what he did, what he saw, what he discovered when he had this first stage crash in Iowa on September 9th of 1896, the first of his career. And his quote is telling. It's the same reason why demolition derbies attract hundreds of thousands of people still to this day in 2020, why we go to those building implosions. To quote Joe Connolly in a magazine article from 1933, he writes, I believe somewhere in the makeup of every normal person, there lurks the suppressed desire to smash things up. So I was convinced that thousands of others would be just as curious as I was to see what would actually take place when two speeding locomotives came together. He was right. No, he didn't invent the concept, but he perfected it. As I mentioned, for about a 40-year stretch, this guy was putting on about two of these a year, and he was making really good money doing it. He put on 73 wrecks along with other promoters and people across the country. You're probably you're talking about a combined total of 150 to 200 of these things that would have happened over the 40-year the time frame from the 1890s to the 1930s. And, you know, Conley had, as I mentioned, about an unblemished safety record. And he put these things on from Massachusetts to California. He put them on at state fairs. He put them on as standalone attractions. He put them on anywhere he could convince people or people could convince him to come put one on. Uh, that was where Conley did his work. He worked most often in San Antonio. Four of his 73 crashes happened in San Antonio. Three of his 73 wrecks happened in the greater New York City area. Three in the greater Milwaukee area. And three in Des Moines, Iowa. And, you know, the first one, of course, was uh, an amazing one for him. The wreck he put on July 4th of 1911 is the record breaker of all time. 162,000 people came to the Brighton Beach racetrack on Coney Island, just outside of New York City, to see two old 440 engines smash into each other. 440s were relatively small locomotives, but um, again, he bought them cheap and they crashed into each other. But July 4th, 1911, 162,000 people. That is incredible. Brighton Beach Racetrack was a neat story in and unto itself. It was a horse racing track until 1908. And then New York State banned the gambling and banned horse racing in 1908, so it became a car racing track, which it was until about 1920, but they never had a crowd before or since larger than the one that showed up to watch these two locomotives crash into each other. And again, we talk about the logistics of building railroad track off of the main line to get them to the racetrack, to get them in front of the grandstands. I mean, it's just a, a mind-boggling thing to think about the work that went into putting these things on. I mentioned that Connolly came up with basically a formula to put these events on, and really that's what every good promoter comes up with. No matter what type of event you're talking about, the promoter develops a formula that he can repeat, that he can sell, and that works. And for Connolly, his formula was simple. He needed 4,000 feet of track. He wanted a combined speed of 45 to 50 miles an hour, and this would give him a great wreck. It would give him the spectacle. It would not cause boilers to explode. And the other thing that Connolly understood was that you didn't just want the engines to just kind of smash into each other and sit there. They Each time he had a crash, there would be like a coal tender, which if you're not familiar with locomotives, where the guy shovels the coal out of, it's like a little trailer attached to the back of the locomotive itself. The coal tender would be attached. Behind the coal tender, there'd be one or two or maybe maximum two, but most of the time just kind of one uh, passenger car. And... The reason he put those on there was because when you crashed into these each other, I should say, at 45 miles an hour, 50 miles an hour combined speed, oftentimes the coal tender would fly up off the tracks and end up like on top of the locomotive. The passenger car would, would telescope, would break off of its mount, and the wooden f portion of it would fly forward and bust into splinters. And as time went on, he even figured out ways to make that more exciting. He would place those exploding torpedoes that I mentioned, those torpedoes that were used as a kind of a crash indicator, as a safety device. So he would place those along the length of track. So as the two trains were coming towards each other, they'd be hitting these torpedoes and they'd be popping and going off like a pyrotechnics display. 
He would place a small case of dynamite inside the pilot area, the locomotive engineer's area of each train that was set on a timer on a long fuse to explode when the two trains got close to each other. And finally, he would pack those wooden passenger cars full of gasoline and other elements and have an open flame in there that when they crashed, the open flame would fly into the gasoline and you would have this big poof of fire. And the passenger car, which was made out of varnished wood, would immediately burst into flames and burn to the ground in flaming wreckage, giving the fans not just the impact of the trains, but the pyrotechnics set up the big explosion when they hit, and then of course the uh, and then of course the burning passenger car. It should be noted, these things were so heavy duty that yes, a case, a small box of dynamite in the engineer's area would not cause the boiler to explode. These things were made out of really heavy duty cast iron. The only thing that little box of dynamite would do would just provide some extra pop when the engines ran into each other. He figured that one mile of track was too long to have the trains on. That's why he wanted four thousand feet. One mile of track would get a lot of locomotives, especially the later locomotives he was using in the 20s and 30s, up to a speed of about 65 miles an hour. And he knew that that was too dangerous in terms of uh, boiler explosion potential. You know, fans and the people that paid to, the, to watch this stuff, they wanted three things. They wanted the smell, they wanted the sound, and they wanted to not get killed in the process of watching it. And so long as they got th all three of those things, you know, the sound of the, the, the steel crashing together, the sound of this hissing steam, the smell of the fire, the smell of the, 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 the hot locomotive kind of just sitting there stewing in its own juices after it crashed. Um, it really is pretty amazing. And when Conley went train shopping, he knew exactly what he was looking for. He would look for old, you know, freight hauler locomotives. Again, passenger locomotives, mostly built for speed. You're hauling people, you want to be going 65, 70 miles an hour, 75 miles an hour. By the time of the, the greatest age of steam locomotives, some of these things could run over 100 miles an hour, which is terrifying in its own kind of special way. But that was not what Conley was shopping for. He wanted the old kind of draft horses, the old donkey-style locomotives that were built to go slowly, that were built to haul huge amounts of, of load, and uh, that would not be hitting each other at 65 miles an hour. He also was conscious of the fact that if he ran good passenger locomotives into each other, it wasn't necessarily uh, as entertaining for people. Because, as we'll see, and as time goes on, the attitude of wrecking nice things um, kind of turned. The worm kind of turned on this whole thing, but we'll get into that in a couple of minutes. But the idea of just crashing a couple of old-school um, you know, of old school freight locomotives at each other. People didn't really care about that. They, they enjoyed that. The idea of wrecking passenger locomotives into each other was something that uh, he figured might turn people's stomachs. On August 27, 1932, Head-On Joe stages his last wreck. In a really cool kind of full circle moment, this crash was staged in Des Moines, Iowa, where he got going, where he started his career, where he wrecked his first two locomotives. He would wreck his last two. He bought a couple of used 460 freight locomotives, and um, they were worthless. Uh, he bought them from the Milwaukee, St. Paul, and Pacific Railroad. And 1932, remember, is an election year. So, uh, so many of these train wrecks were actually set up almost as political statements. And in this particular one, they painted the, the passenger car that was the ill-fated and doomed passenger car at the back of one of them was painted Roosevelt. The ill-fated and doomed passenger car at the back of the other one was painted Hoover, and they were run into each other. The Roosevelt train was actually headed eastward, pointed towards Washington, D.C., so I guess we know which way, uh, which way Connolly was favoring the election to go. But uh, Hoover's train was moving on the westward side of that, or the westward direction on that track. 45,000 people showed up to watch this thing. Still, 40 years on, 45,000 people showed up to watch this. And you may ask yourself, how is it still popular? Why would it still be popular all those years later? You know people have seen it, right? Wrong. You have to get yourself out of the modern mindset of what is available for media. The 45,000 people that sat down there, remember only three of these wrecks ever took place in Des Moines, Iowa. And a lot of people didn't travel that much during this time in history, even in the 1930s, especially in 1932 when the Depression is on. So, yes, the fact that it's it's happening again, it's another stage train wreck, it is still a very fresh moment for a lot of people to watch because unless you attended the other two, one of which was in the 1890s, 
Um, you have never seen this before, nor have you been able to go on YouTube and watch it, nor have you been able to see a newsreel with this on it, nor have you been able to see it outside of your mind's eye imagination. That is why 45,000 people paid their money to see something that had been happening for 40 years in basically the same fashion. Two trains, throttles locked open, crashing at 45 miles an hour. You've seen it once, you've seen it all the time, right? But you've probably never seen it at all. $4,000 was his payout for this one, plus whatever he got out of the gate. The This, as I mentioned to, about Connolly's safety record, virtually unblemished. Believe it or not, he made it all the way to this last wreck before he had a single injury, and it was a person was hit by, uh, a couple people were hit by shrapnel. One guy got uh, damaged uh, in the head, I should say, by a bolt. Didn't pass away didn't sue the fair, had gone to see a train wreck, and by God, he saw one and took home a souvenir of a bolt embedded in his forehead. He ended up recovering, as did anybody else that received some minor injuries in terms of their uh, catching of shrapnel or pieces from Herbert Hoover's boiler. Not Hoover's personal boiler, but the one that was carrying his particular passenger car behind it. That is the train that exploded, as did Hoover's political career in 1932. Connolly died in 1948, had lived a, a good life, had lived an interesting life, was a guy who took a background in operating a theater and promoting a theater and turned it into perhaps the oddest profession in American history, but one that paid him handsomely. He lived well. Supposedly, in his house, there was a single locomotive brass bell. It was the only kind of souvenir he kept from any of these things. He had a, a brass bell, the likes of which would have been found atop a locomotive at that point, uh, or earlier in American history. It would be a couple of years later on June 30th, 1935 in Magnolia, Illinois, that the final publicly staged spectator locomotive crash would be held in the United States. And this one was a, a disaster. Uh, it was two very small locomotives. They were supposed to crash on a bridge at a combined speed of about 50 miles an hour. Both of them were far too slow to actually meet at the point they were supposed to meet. So they hit in the middle of a field where no one was even really standing um, and they didn't even hit hard enough to make the paper the next day. It was literally not reported on by anyone other than people who had seen it. There was a couple of firsthand accounts of people demanding their money back and talking about kind of how lame it was. And that was it. After June 30th, 1935, there was not another staged spectator train wreck for the purposes of uh, entertaining the paying public and for profit in the United States. Why? The Great Depression changed so many things in the country. It made it look very wasteful. It made it look awful. You have an era, an era in history where people are growing victory gardens, trying to feed themselves at home, mass unemployment. Um, the world is changing around them, and everything you are supposed to be conserving and rationing and saving everything. And so to be destroying tired but functional locomotives for profit, it just didn't actually appeal to people anymore. In fact, it, it turned them off. It was something that people were becoming against because of what it represented. It represented excess and waste and the ability to uh, just kind of throw things away that, that could otherwise be used. In 1951, uh, there's a 1951 movie called Denver and the Rio Grande. And, you know, we talk about, we talk about making movies today. We talk about CGI. We talk about the computer technology involved. Well, Denver and the Rio Grande in 1951 is the last known staged wreck of two steam locomotives. And you can go on YouTube and watch, and I recommend that you do, because there was no CGI back then. There was no way to make this look anything other than hokey unless you did it full speed ahead and with real trains, and that's exactly what they did. So you can go and you can literally just type in Denver and Rio Grande train crash and watch that scene, and it really is amazing. There is a good amount of newsreel footage of uh, some of the higher profile stage train wrecks that you can go watch. Obviously, you're not going to be able to see the crash or crush in movement, but you can see it in still daguerreotype style photos. You'll be able to watch some of the uh, Des Moines State Fair crashes. You'll certainly be able to watch the Denver and Rio Grande crash. And there have been staged train crashes since then, but not for the reasons you may think. There have been a lot of stage crashes for 
the investigation of how to make trains safer, how to make railroad crossings safer, how to design things better. But these have been done under the auspices of science and engineering. They've not been done under the auspices of having a spectator style event. So 1951, we're going to go on the books here and say that that was the last time anybody ran two steam engines or even two trains together full size on purpose and for the entertainment of others. And it ended really in the 30s. You know, we talk about 1896 to 1935, a near perfect 40 year run of this very strange spectacle that entertained hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of people across America. And it did so infrequently and it did so in a repeated fashion in only a handful of places like we talked about san antonio new york city des moines and milwaukee are the only cities that had multiple ones of these outside of the california state fair which had two or three over the course of its lifetime as well we know joe conley's name because he did it so many times head on joe was the guy who perfected the art but there were dozens of other promoters out there who put on their own wrecks made their own piles of money and may have caused more damage and carnage than any demolition derby proprietor will ever know. So there you have it, a look back into the weird history of locomotive crashing for fun and profit in the United States of America between 1896 and 1935. We'll be back with another smashing episode of the Dorkomotive podcast soon, and make sure to check us out on dorkomotive.com where you too can help support the show. We'll be back with more fun, more history, and more mechanical mayhem soon here on Dorkomotive. I'm Brian Loans, and I thank you for listening. This episode of the Dorkomotive Podcast is presented by Aeromotive. Since 1994, Aeromotive has been a leader in the high-performance aftermarket, manufacturing pumps, fittings, regulators, and now in-tank solutions for high-performance cars, trucks, and marine applications. Visit them online at aeromotiveinc.com. Remember, if you can race it, Aeromotive can fuel it.